Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Kat Leverance. We're your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Bereskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at bereskinandparr.com forward slash podcast to access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. Today, Tamara Weingast and Naomi Zenner are joining us to discuss copyright issues and legal tactics and strategies used by IP owners to curb online infringement. Specifically, today we're going to be discussing two recent copyright cases involving reverse class actions aimed at curbing infringement on BitTorrent networks and Canada's first site blocking order against an illegal IPTV service. Tamara Weingast is an associate at Breskin and Parr LLP and a member of the Trademarks and Copyright and Digital Media practice groups. Her practice focuses on trademarks, copyright and digital media, licensing, marketing, and advertising law, in addition to litigation. Naomi Zenner is counsel with Breskin and Parr LLP. Her practice focuses on copyright, entertainment, transactional IP, and marketing and advertising law. She has 15 years of experience working in legal and business affairs executive management, as well as experience in private practice. She acted as Canadian counsel for clients in both Canada and the U.S. in TV broadcast, film, and technology industries. Naomi, Tamara, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So today we will kick off with a discussion of some recent Canadian cases that look at issues related to how to address mass infringement on the internet. First, we'll be looking at the decision handed down uh, in a recent case involving Voltage Pictures and a number of other production companies in what is called a reverse class action. And then we'll briefly discuss the first site blocking order that was handed down uh, in Canada ordering ISPs to block various sites that were found to have um, uh, basically be pirate sites. Tamara, do you want to talk about the uh, Voltage case first? Absolutely. Thanks, Kat. So the context of the Voltage case has to do with BitTorrenting of motion pictures by individuals in Canada. And so BitTorrenting is essentially uh, computer users or device users will download a program um, to their device that allows them to search for content, in this case movies. And while running that program, not only are you able to download, but the content that is on your device is also capable of being downloaded by any other user on that BitTorrent network. And so what happened was in 2015, Voltage um, engaged um, a private investigator and was able to identify hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, internet addresses, IP addresses, that had been on the BitTorrent network and had downloaded and uploaded uh, copyright content, specifically some movies, over which Voltage uh, claimed copyright and these other production companies owned copyright. So the decision that was released in November is sort of the latest in a long line of decisions having to do with how this case progressed, um, including one that went all the way up to the Supreme Court that had to do with how much money Volt, or the um, ISP providers, so the internet service providers, could request or could charge to go through and identify all the individuals who were associated with the internet protocol addresses, the IP addresses, that Voltage had identified as having infringed copyright through their investigations. And so this reverse class action, this is one tactic that was used by or that is theorized within the copyright community um, to 
try to address online infringement and in particular to go against users. So if you are downloading an illegal movie through one of these P2P networks, um, uh, you're the target of, of this particular activity. It's not the website they're going after. It's not whoever um, you know originally created the infringing movie. Uh, it's the actual user that's downloaded. So that's the theory behind this one. And, and this is a strategy question that a lot of rights holders has. Is it more worthwhile? Is there a better cost benefit to going after the source of the infringement? So for example, the website itself that is hosting the content or is it better to go after individual infringers? And up until now, the prospect of going after individual infringers was really a calculated, I'm not going to call it a hit and miss, but it was really a calculated decision of sort of cherry pick who you go after as a defendant. It's individuals. You couldn't or you haven't been able to really group a number of people, and so that's made the litigation particularly costly, and also a lot of time and effort will need to go into it because you're bringing each lawsuit against an individual infringer who might be a private individual as opposed to a corporation or an entity that is hosting the content. And just scale-wise, that's that's untenable. You can't, you know, if you have. 500 people that are sharing a particular movie on a single BitTorrent network, the idea of bringing 500 separate lawsuits is um, not cost-effective considering the exposure to anyone. So I understand the the impetus behind looking at the re reverse class action in order to address this. Um, and so the decision that was handed down last week, um, what did the court find? Essentially, it threw a big wrench into the idea that you could bring a reverse class action lawsuit uh, in respect of copyright infringement over the internet, specifically through the BitTorrent network. Um, and really, it seemed that the court seemed to have a problem with how to connect the infringing activity with an individual and with the information that Voltage had obtained in this case to connect the IP address where the infringement was taking place with the individual. So Voltage proceeded on the theory that you could identify, that you could use the identity of the IP owner, um, of, the, of the subscriber essentially, that corresponded with the internet address that had been identified in the investigation as a proxy for the infringer. So I have uh, an internet account at home, and the account is in my name, and I have children, and I have relatives, and I have... Um, guests that come and they all have access to my internet. So the theory of this case is if somebody uses my internet um, and they download a movie and then I receive um, a notice from my ISP under what is called the notice and notice regime because they, they see that my IP address has downloaded the movie and that activity continues that I as the account holder am liable. So the basic theory is that um, is what, Naomi? The legal obligation to monitor the internet activity. So if I might just jump back for a second, in the Voltage Pictures case, what Voltage and the other plaintiffs were trying to do was say, A is us and Z is the infringer without looking at all the letters in between to prove that Z is the actual infringer. Where they stopped was somewhere around like L, and they said, we have an IP address, but they haven't been able to tie Z, who is still anonymous, to L. That we don't know who's using the device. We don't know who's 
using what devices through this IP address? And it could be a whole host of people. And in this case, they said, we have no direct infringer that we can name in this reverse class. And at best, maybe this person is an authorizing infringer, one of the people that were named, but we don't have a direct one. So if you don't have a direct infringer, you, you, you can't name somebody as the representative for that class. For the direct infringement piece. Yeah. And then on the authorizing infringement piece, my, my read of the case is um, basically that there's not going to be an imputed obligation on somebody that has an internet account to control the use of that account by others. The general reading is that there's no legal obligation to monitor, and as a result of that, even if you receive notice, um, just by virtue of having received that notice, the activity continues, doesn't result in you being liable. And it's interesting, like, the, the read, there was an intervener in the case, um, Canadian Internet uh, Policy and Public Inter Interest uh, Clinic, and many of the submissions that they raised um, seemed to speak to public policy issues. Um, Tamara, did you, do you have any comments on... Yeah, so in addition to imputing, uh, or, or rather deciding that we could not impute uh, liability on the owner of an IS, or the owner of an IP on the basis of these facts, what seemed to really turn the court's mind to dismissing uh, the particular claims uh, with respect to voltages as to what could be a common question for the class was how the technology itself worked. Um, so they said in the decision that based on one of the experts' evidence, there was no differentiation between downloading and uploading files to BitTorrent, and that internet users do not consciously decide or act so as to offer a file for download or to advertise that it is available for download. And a core aspect of the BitTorrent protocol is that all files, once shared, are shared by all, and this can be done without a user's knowledge. So because of this, it made it that much more difficult for Voltage's claim of secondary infringement to succeed because there could not be any knowledge imputed based on how the actual technology works. So it leaves the door open that if there's different technology at issue in the case, whether or not something like this could proceed or, or knowledge could be imputed on the part of the account holder um, or any other party for that matter. Yeah, and the other, um, related to that, the other part that I found interesting was the, the court's comments related to um, the pleading that the those that participate in a, a BitTorrent or a P2P network um, are advertising the work for download, and by virtue of doing that um, through a BitTorrent protocol, they violated the Copyright Act. And my reading is that, um, uh, of the case, is that they found that that type of action is not born in the Copyright Act. Mm -hmm. um, but then how does that get reconciled with the telecommunication right, making something available? Um, well, that, that, that's a really big debate. And you know, I've had this debate with you, I've had this debate with <laughs> colleagues in the past, is whether the making available right is a right in and of itself, or rather one of the rights, a type of right uh, that's enumerated at Section 3 of the Copyright Act. Um, which in several cases the Supreme Court has said the preamble sort of sets out three different rights, a reproduction right, a performance right, and a, cop and, um, a publication right, and that all copyright rights essentially flow from those three categories. Yeah, so the telecommunication would be a performance right, and there's the, the te right to telecommunicate to the public includes now the making available right. Correct. Interesting. 
Um, okay, so uh, so reverse class action denied. Clearly, um, that is one tactic that uh, I guess if the decision is not appealed, w will be approached with far more caution. Reading the decision, you know, maybe it's possible, as uh, as you noted, although from a different angle, that. Um, uh, once different technology is available to try to identify, for example, an IP address as well as a device ID, that maybe some of the evidentiary deficiencies to, to that were part of the problem in certifying the class may be addressed. But for now, it seems unlikely that reverse class actions will um, get too much wind, at least in this particular context. Um, so. But, and so while, you know, Tuesday, whenever the decision was handed out, I think everybody um, felt that, okay, well, how are we going to address infringement online? And then the federal court handed down another decision. Yeah. Naomi? It's the decision in um, Bell Media, uh, Group TVA, Rogers Media, and then Gold TV, which is a TV service that offers content that infringes the copyright of... Um, the holders and then a bunch of anonymous John Doe's um, and third-party respondents that included, um, amongst others, Kojiko, Distributel, and Tech Savvy. And it's the first site-blocking decision um, that has been handed down since this has become uh, a hotbed issue since, I would say, 20, was it 2018 when the CRTC said no to the Fair Play Coalition's ask for site blocking to be a tool that uh, could be used by the CRTC. So just by way of background, uh, last year in 2018, a number of rights holders acting as what was called the Fair Play Coalition approached the CRTC uh, to ask them to make a ruling under Section 36 of the Telecommunications Act that certain websites that were known to host infringing materials could be blocked. And the CRTC essentially demurred. They said, this is a copyright issue. This isn't a telecommunications issue. So it falls outside of our jurisdiction. And what the decision in Bell Media and Gold TV does, it essentially blesses a court order that gives site blocking. Um, and it also shows that the CRTC doesn't need to do that. that while it might be outside of their jurisdiction, they don't need to approve the court order. They don't need to um, approve what sites are blocked. Section 36 of the Telecommunications Act isn't necessarily part of that power, but that you need to go through the federal court and specifically through copyright claims in order to get this type of relief. This issue was one of the issues um, that was raised and is a very important issue, frankly. We have a notice and notice regime, which um, many say is not effective. And as part of the Copyright Act review, this was put front and center before, um, before the committee that was looking at the act. And there were a number of concerns that were raised um, before the committee, including related to overblocking and um, you know free, uh, free expression and, and um, keeping a good public commons, as well as just practical issues with respect to whether or not this remedy is effective. Uh, Naomi, looking at the decision, are, are these issues addressed? Yeah, no, they are actually in the draft or in the draft order, they were more or less addressed, but then in the final order, they all were addressed in that there's a mechanism f through which if uh, you feel that 
complying with the order might result in overblocking, you can temporarily suspend compliance with it in order to assess whether or not you're actually blocking the right sites. Um, there's also a mechanism through which you can add additional sites with filing of new fresh evidence for those other IP addresses or DNS addresses, what have you, that are implicated. Um, the other thing that is interesting in there from uh, the freedom of expression angle is that the court outrightly said, like, this is not an issue of freedom of expression. We're not censoring. We're not limiting speech. Um, this is limiting copyright infringement. And the, another concern that was raised, actually, by one of the third-party respondents was the concern as to the costs associated with site blocking and rerouting, and in particular one third-party respondent had brought up the point they don't have a business process for this. And the court said, well, you're supposed to take reasonable steps. So if you don't have that as an option, you'll, I'm sure, have another way to address it. And the costs associated with all of this are to be paid for by the plaintiffs, so that's by Rogers, Bell, and, and Tevia. So that's another thing to consider. And what's interesting about this particular decision is that it wasn't really the first instance. The rights holders didn't approach the court right away and say, give us the site blocking order. It's actually on the heels of several injunctions issued against the infringing websites themselves. And so what the court did in this case was they said, we're allowing this third-party injunction to go forward because notwithstanding the other injunctions that we've issued directly against the infringers, the infringement has not stopped. And so it's interesting to consider this decision in light of last year's decision out of the Supreme Court in Google and Equistack, where the court had ordered Google to de-index certain websites that were infringing. And like in the Bell Media case, the infringer in Equistack had had injunctions issued directly against it, and it was really sort of a last-ditch effort on the part of the rights holder to stop those infringements that were coming through, to turn to the third parties and say, hey, you have the power to stop this. Can you do it? If the third parties say no, then turning to the court and going, court, can I get some sort of mechanism? Can I have an injunction that will require these third parties that are allowing the infringement to continue to stop it? And I think that the tone of the decision is, to Kat's earlier question, as to whether we need Parliament to step in and legislate something, because one of the arguments was, well, federal court, you don't have the authority to do this, you don't have this remedy, and the court said, well, actually, this is available to us under the Copyright Act, and we're enabled by the Federal Courts Act in order to issue this kind of site-blocking order, um, is to really see, like, let's see how this works. That's yeah. the tone I got out of the decision. And if this works there's no need to necessarily further regulate through legislation. Um, but it's like, let's wait and see. Yeah, I, 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 um, I agree. And I, I, um, I think that some of the commentary as well is interesting in this as to whether or not it will be effective. I think one of the challenges was that there's so many ways to be able to circumvent this, both on the, the user side, uh, somebody that wants to download, as well as on the, um, on the website side. So, uh, you know, if we're going to if we're going to use this really, really, um, this super weapon, or we're going to use this really serious remedy, um, we should be confident that that it's effective. And, and there was a suggestion that it, it wouldn't be because of VPNs and all of this. Um, and to me, it's interesting because the the, the uh, court and 
I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. The court seemed to to say that, look, we, it may not be perfect, and certainly there are workarounds, but we look at other jurisdictions where this has been implemented, and um, it, it does discourage, and it does dissuade, and we are seeing a meaningful, um, it, we've seen, this has been proven, we're not fully in new waters. Yeah, and speaking of looking to other jurisdictions, in deciding sort of the scope and the content of the order and whether or not it was justified, the court essentially adopted the approach taken by the UK courts in the Cartier litigation uh, with respect to trademark infringement and the selling of counterfeit goods, um, which was really interesting to see because the Cartier decision was also discussed a little bit in some of the lower court decisions in the Equistec and Google uh, context. So seeing, I'm not going to say the wholesale adoption, but seeing certainly the adoption of the same approach to try to balance, you know, whether or not this is practical, whether or not this is going to be effective, uh, is really interesting. Yeah, and to me, like, I, I, the court, you know, they, they took the factors that were set out by the UK court and they fit them within our test, like necessity being the first prong and then everything else falling under balance of convenience. There's very similar attitudes about how to approach this. So the factors being necessity, the extent to which the relief is necessary to protect the plaintiff's rights, effectiveness, whether the relief sought will make the infringing activities more difficult to achieve, dissuasiveness, a consideration as to whether the in not being able to access the service, people will be dissuaded from trying to do so. Um, the complexity and cost is a consideration of the complexity and cost in implementing this relief. So in implementing a site blocking order. The barriers to legitimate use or trade includes a consideration of whether the relief will create barriers to legitimate use without, uh, sorry, by unduly affecting the ability of users of ISP services to access information lawfully. Fairness looks at trying to strike a balance between fundamental rights of the parties, the third parties, and the general public. Substitution is basically looking at whether or not these sites are going to be replaced or substituted with another infringing website. And lastly, safeguards, looking at whether the relief sought includes measures that safeguard against abuse. Yeah, and so the necessity is uh, was squeezed into our irreparable harm and everything else balance of convenience. And to me, that analysis tracks. And the court was clear that these are these are not exhaustive factors and no one is determinative. So I, I, the, the analysis, t to my mind, um, was cohesive. Um, the... Um, you know, looking at all of the the submissions by the Fair Play Coalition, as well as the response by the CRTC and INDU, um, to me this was actually quite a, an exciting um, decision come out. And I wonder, um, and it, I, I thought that much of the analysis addressed many of the issues that were raised during the um, during the the statutory review of the the Copyright Act. And I wonder um, whether or not the government may still open this up to, for example, simplify the procedure. This is going to be unwieldy. The reality is that there's many websites out there that um, make works available. And in 2012, we had this new type of infringement that came in to address services that primarily enable acts of infringement. But the reality is that those are often you know, somewhere very far offshore and very difficult to actually get at. And there is a bit of a whack-a-mole game. Um, and I appreciate that substitution was one of the factors. <laughs> um, but And that the court said the fact that you could substitute 
Institute doesn't mean that this remedy is not available. But I wonder whether or not we're going to see some simplified procedural mechanism. Any thoughts or comments on, on who's got a crystal ball? Anybody? <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball, but at least to my mind, I think what this speaks to, especially looking at the UK decision as uh, sorry, the UK factors is one to follow, is that this is a global problem. Yeah. And it's one that needs a kind of global view in terms of trying to solve it. So I think this is just really a first step. And as I mentioned before, wait and see to what extent this works or this becomes, to your point, unwieldy and more legislative approaches are required. Um, but I think it's the first step in the right direction. So, Kat, you brought up before the idea of the domain name dispute being a sort of roadmap for how to perhaps conceive of a private enforcement mechanism in the context of site blocking. And I think it certainly could be. I mean, in the, the domain name context, what you do is you have a domain name registrant who registered, uh, who registered the domain name in bad faith, and you essentially serve it on that person and serve it on the uh, registrar, so the entity that's administering the domain name, um, such that once an order or once a decision actually issues against the individual who registered the domain name, the registrar takes action in respect of that domain name. And I think in the context of site blocking, um, that certainly could be a useful way of conceiving of how to go about um, obtaining a faster uh, perhaps less expensive remedy than going through the courts and also to save the courts some time, you know, bringing a streamlined proceeding against the known infringing website, obtaining a decision, and then turning to the ISPs or turning to the uh, whoever can sort of control access to that website and say, here's my order, can you please take it down? The issue that gets raised, however, is that does having that order against the individual automatically entitle the rights holder to have the site blocked and how does the ISP or how does the court or how does the adjudicator sort of balance the rights and the freedom of expression concerns and the concern about over blocking that the court so carefully weighed in the Bell decision and how do you maintain that flexibility. So as Naomi mentioned earlier, part of what the court did here to address the concerns raised by some of the third parties is put in mechanisms that allow the order to be flexible, mm -hmm. um, to add domain names, to add websites, to take websites off the list with the submission of further evidence. So query whether if Parliament decides to set up or allow for a private enforcement mechanism with respect to site blocking, they will mandate that type of flexibility in whatever orders are issued. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that's a, a great point, Tamara. Like the con you're right, the context of domain names is quite different than blocking sites, freedom of expression um, uh, issues, as well as other issues, um, are very distinct. And so um, there will certainly be a lot to think about with any sort of you know small tribunal that gets set up in order to to address these issues. The other difference, and and Naomi, I take your point that this is a global problem. Um, and you know, domain names. We did come up with this global um, mechanism to address them. But I think that you know, site blocking. In an ideal world, we would figure out a way for this to happen on a global level. But it, it's more challenging because of the overlay with telecommunications um, uh, laws, as well as um, freedom of expression issues, which do differ from from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So it'll be it'll certainly be interesting to see. But big boon, big win. Um, uh, site blocking order being issued, uh, first one in Canada. Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at, at 
voltage and this decision, as well as other um, things that are happening globally, but also to defend for that amount uh, is unwieldy. So good to see alternate approaches. We will, uh, we will see where this decision goes. Thank you very much, ladies. Our guests today have been Tamar Weingust and Naomi Zinner from our Toronto office. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Bereskin and Par professionals, particularly Naomi and Tamara, will be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting bereskinandpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Bereskin and Par LLP. Until next time.